So I have a question. Okay. I'm not going to show you anything disgusting. Right. Is the only reason that our left hands are more stupid because we make a decision really early on that the kids have to do one or the other and we'd probably be better if we didn't do that? No, you have a dominant side of your brain. So if you're right-handed, then your left side of your brain is dominant. Yeah, I always feel like it's that thing that's just like there being really stupid and it could just be a better utilised tool. I think you're right. I think it's a bit of both, but conditioning as well as... I knew I was right. (laughs) (laughs) I heart doctors especially the handsome ones (laughs) Hello, my name is Kirsty Stiles and welcome to the weekly economics podcast from the New Economics Foundation This week we're talking to Ben Bouquet who is a junior doctor working in public health who is here to talk about the junior doctor strike planned for this week in our NHS This is a completely unnecessary dispute. We all want to promise every patient who uses the NHS the promise of the same high-quality care every day of the week. Now, this morning, junior doctors all across England walked out of their hospital shifts to join picket lines. 66% of the public support junior doctors, and you are a big bad wolf. No, I don't think we're a big bad wolf. This is the greatest threat to patient safety in all the years that I've been a junior doctor. The web says from Pope Folkestone, it's disgusting these junior doctors have gone on strike. They should get their bums back to work immediately. We want to keep a fair, good national health service for the people of this country. We need to look after our doctors. This debate shouldn't be happening at all. The debate should be about the future funding of the NHS and what can we actually afford. So hello, Ben, and welcome to the weekly economics podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Wonderful. Thank you very much for joining us. So junior doctors in England are planning to strike this week. Uh, so first of all, can you just explain what a junior doctor is? Is it is it just the baby ones? So a junior doctor is anyone after finishing medical school up until you become a consultant or a general practitioner. Um, so that's any in terms of an age range that can be pretty much all the working life um, because some people for instance come to med- medicine quite late so you can be a junior doctor in your 40s even your 50s um, there's no age limit on it um, and it's varying levels of seniority as well so you can get quite senior um, for instance registrars in hospital the the medical registrar and the surgical registrar who are pretty much the people who run um, hospitals out of hours um, are termed as junior doctors, even though they're the sort of go-to point for all the junior other junior doctors in the hospital. Uh, okay, so it's weird actually because I've been listening to radio reports at the previous strike and calling them junior doctors implies it's just kind of kids kicking off. It's interesting to hear that that it's uh, registrars kicking it off too. Um, so they're in a dispute with the government about contracts. Uh, and let's start with what prompted the strikes. Um, what are the government and the NHS bosses trying to do? If we, you know, to talk about the the rhetoric around what's what's being proposed is this idea of a of a seven day service. Um, for the NHS Um, and a lot of the ideas around that have been drawn from um, evidence which has shown uh, higher rates of mortality for patients who are admitted at weekends. I think you know in terms of the evidence that's a very you know there's there's been some dispute about that. Um, I think we shouldn't dismiss evidence like that out of hand but it's important to ask 
you know, what is an effective way of improving patient safety out of hours. And I think the main criticism that junior doctors have is that, um, you know, focusing on one single contract for one group of healthcare providers is not an effective way of um, improving patient safety. Okay, so as, as you've said there, uh, one of the key things they're trying to do here is is offer the seven-day service uh, from the NHS. So what are the main problems um, with, that the doctors' unions have with that um, change to the contract? Yeah, so I mean, essentially the way that they're proposing to do that is to spread the current service more thinly. So with an existing healthcare you know, workforce, and in particular junior doctors, rather than... Um, looking at the provision of, of doctors, the number of doctors per, um, you know, head of the population. Um, for instance, it's lower here than in some other European countries. Um, for instance, um, Spain, here it's about 2.8 uh, physicians per head of the population. In Spain, it's 4.9. So rather wow. than looking at the actual supply of doctors or the numbers of doctors, what they're saying is just that we, we're going to spread the existing workforce over that seven-day period. The main issue that junior doctors have with that is that if you're you know increasing the number of junior doctors at weekends is that actually going to address the the safety issues at the weekends without the support services of other staff the other issue is that is fundamentally about pay which is changing the uh, definition of what out of hours pay is to include saturday's normal working hours that goes back to a proposal by the department of health in 2014 where they proposed emulating the retail sector where in in retail saturday is not seen as an out out of out of the ordinary for for working hours so the health secretary Jeremy Hunt has actually been talking about how this is an 11% pay increase. What's that all about? Um, so what he's proposed, but um, it's changed several times during the discussions, is um, an 11% increase in the base rate salary. The significant thing about this is that actually overall for the majority of doctors, uh, that means a pay reduction because the majority of doctors a substantial part of their salary comes from their out-of-hours work. So, and that's very important for specialties like A&E, for specialties like acute medicine, where a lot of the work is out-of-hours, a lot of the work is unsociable. What makes that more attractive as a specialty um, is the remuneration, which is lacking for the specialty I'm in, for instance, which is public health, where we have very limited out-of-hours work. So, but the real issue here, as I was saying, um, with the proposals that the Department of Health put through in December of 2014 is that this isn't just changes that they were proposing only for junior doctors. This is just the first um, step in in proposals that have been drafted for the entire um, workforce, which is on the pay scale that's called Agenda for Change. And as well as the pay reduction that junior doctors are facing, there's also um, removal of um, pay progression. So at the moment, every year that you're in the NHS, you receive a pay rise. What this removal is going to mean is that that's essentially you know, rationalised in inverted commas so that you have to sort of prove your worth, as it were, which is very difficult to do when you think about working as a healthcare worker, proving that you're worth more than another healthcare worker is um, almost anathema to most healthcare workers because we work as a team. So you've already alluded to some of the things that are happening at a wider level in the NHS. What's the context for this dispute? Um, so the context for the for the negotiations is that junior doctors, first of all, are trained within the NHS. So they constitute a substantial part of the workforce in the NHS. And what this dispute has become um, sort of symbolic of, whether that's 
inadvertently really on the part of junior doctors is a broader struggle within the NHS for a socialised form of healthcare. As we know, the NHS, founded in 1948, is was founded as a social form of medicine, so free at the point of delivery. It's equitable in that respect. It's equal access for all. It's efficient in terms of its spending. So if you compare the amount that we spend here in this country as a proportion of our GDP to the United States, it's almost half of what they spend. And that's for outcomes which are actually better than the United States in terms of life expectancy, in terms of healthy life expectancy. And, you know, this is backed up by reports such as the Commonwealth Fund, where they found the NHS is one of the best healthcare systems in the world. Of course, it depends how you measure that. But it's really testament to the system that it is a good system. It's a world-class system. And what we've seen really since particularly the Health and Social Care Act in 2012 um, is an attack on that system. So, I mean, this is not something that just goes back to 2012. This is a much longer pattern that's been seen since the 1990s with the sort of introduction of an internal market to the NHS. Okay, so you've just um, kind of t- taken the words out of my mouth there. Um, is this a significant policy change then from what we've been seeing for the last you know, 20 or so years? So there has been, an, in- the, as I say, there was this introduction, um, the steady introduction of the other market, an internal market in the NHS. Um, now, what that means is that a central pot of money from the government is given to sort of local health boards. These are called the CCGs, clinical commissioning groups now. And those bodies purchase so they buy health services from healthcare providers now if you look at scotland that system doesn't exist it's one you know the purchaser and provider are the same function so you you essentially cut out that transaction that contracting now the main criticism of that process of that introduction which as i say is not a new one that's not something with the health and social care act that goes back to the early 1990s is that it's a very expensive process so contracts are legal legally binding um, so you need legal advice they take a lot of administration so if you look at the administrative costs in the nhs before the 1990s they're around five or six percent um, now a conservative estimate that was reported to the health select committee was of 16 percent so around a threefold increase in the cost of administration so, I mean, a lot of the talk, uh, talking government is around efficiency and, and cost savings. But you're saying that, that the changes over the last 30 years and particularly the um, latest change to commissioning structures hasn't actually uh, made our service cheaper? Um, well, as I say, that change to commissioning structures is a longer term one. But there's been several mechanisms by which the cost of the NHS has been increased Going back to the 1990s again, if you look at the introduction of private finance initiatives, so that's um, where individual hospital trusts can take out private debt. Um, A study in 2008 found that some NHS trusts were paying a fifth to a quarter of their annual budget towards servicing those debts. This last year, we've seen a substantial number of NHS trusts been labelled failing healthcare trusts. One of the major contributing factors to that is this over-indebtedness of of, uh, NHS trusts. Um, And that's not being fundamentally tackled by the government. Instead, there's an overemphasis on the role that the market can have in reducing um, healthcare expenditure when actually, historically, that's been shown to actually increase healthcare expenditure. And when you look geographically, as I said, with the United States, it's actually a much more expensive form of delivering healthcare. So this is one of the uh, kind of long talked about ring fence departments. Has the NHS actually seen cuts? 
So in real terms, um, the government's uh, pledged uh, five years of funding that's ring-fenced, as you say, with a um, steady or a very small increase. But it, it, when you put that as a proportion of GDP, um, when you look at forecasts for growth of the economy as a whole, what we look to see is a reduction in the percentage of GDP that's spent on healthcare. The, the NHS is also hemorrhaging funds in terms of these private finance initiatives, the private debt um, that NHS trusts have got into, um, and also the amount of administrative costs. And the government is not tackling that at all. So I guess the big question that uh, many people will want to ask you is, is has the NHS quietly been privatised? So I think this comes back to the Health and Social Care Act of 2012. So the fundamental change that we had in terms of um, the ability of private firms to provide NHS services was a change from um, a preference for commissioners. So that's the people buying healthcare services, the CCGs, from a preference for NHS services to any willing provider. In reality, what that's meant has been that in 2014 to 15, we've seen of uh, around £9.63 billion of NHS contracts, um, around 40% of that, so £3.5 billion of contracts have gone to private firms. So we've certainly got a mandate for privatisation in this way through contracting out to private providers on a local level. And we are seeing big players, big healthcare providers moving in and and taking up a share of the NHS market. Well, thank you very much, Ben, for um, taking the time out to come and explain some of that detail for us today. Thank you very much. We'll be back at the same time next week. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation an independent think tank and charity that campaigns for a fairer, sustainable economy. Find out more and get involved at neweconomics.org.